Dr. Ethel Tunkohan, an Associate Professor of Politics at York University. This is Academic Antis. For many academics, especially those from Global North Western institutions, we take our institutional and national identities for granted. But the reality is that the passports we hold and the places we come from shapes how we experience academia in really fundamental ways. This might include having to account for visa applications before being able to travel to conferences or understanding immigration policies in order to take up jobs outside your country. This also includes dealing with the uncertainty of geopolitical events that make crossing borders an even bigger challenge. Then there are stigmas that scholars face based on assumptions of where they're from. And all of this occurs within a context where we know that post-secondary institutions rely on the exploitation of international scholars to sustain themselves financially. So this week, we want to talk about this notion of academic citizenship. And joining us is my very good friend, who I met when I was doing my postdoc at the University of Alberta, Dr. Anya Kutaleva. Hi, Anya. Hello. So Anya was a PhD student when I was a postdoc at the University of Alberta. And I think our offices are on yeah. the same floor. The um, best floor, the 12th floor. Yay, the best floor, the 12th floor. Yeah, I actually, I really miss Edmonton. Do you miss Edmonton? Oh, a lot, a lot. Yeah. I miss this opportunity to have people around to discuss things and their general sense of community. Yes. That's my head. That's what I really love about UFA and Edmonton in particular. But before we jump into how life has been since we both left Edmonton, do you want to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, my name is Anya Kuteleva. I am an international relations scholar. I'm from Russia. This is where I did my undergrad degree. I went to People's Friendship University of Russia, formerly known as Patrice Lumumba University. I'm very proud of this heritage there. I also did my, some of my studies in China. I did my master's in Shandun University in the city called Dinan. And then I came to Edmonton, where I did my PhD in political science. And now I'm working as a senior lecturer in international relations in University of Wolverhampton. That's in UK. You have traveled a lot, even this brief introduction. I'm just in awe of how you're able to move from one country to another country. But I think this allows us to delve into this concept of academic citizenship that you've talked a little bit about. Do you want to explain to our listeners what that is and how that's reflected in your life? All of us speak with an accent and all of us have a citizenship and origin and it depends on how comfortable you are with those layers of identities. The comfort you have or have not defines how comfortable you are with people asking what's your accent, where it's coming from and where are you from. I don't feel comfortable people asking me this question uh, because as was uh, coming back from the university to prepare for this podcast, I was in a convenience shop and someone asked me where my accent is coming from, what's my yeah. accent. And they were making assumptions like, am I Polish, Ukrainian? I sound Canadian, maybe I'm Russian. And do you want to hear the whole story? Because I need to tell you a lot to answer <laughs> this simple question, where my accent comes from. And at a certain point, it's just difficult to tell where you come from. Specifically, then it's not about your place of birth, but about something else. Mm. And 
as a scholar, I have really a lot of troubles defining myself because doing PhD in Canada, am I Canadian scholar or am I Russian scholar just because I was born in USSR? Uh, no one ever, though, tried to call me Chinese scholar. And it says, mm. so for all the years I did my studies in China, no one ever claimed that I am a Chinese scholar. But when I was doing my fieldwork, and my fieldwork was in Russia, Kazakhstan, Canada, and China, and doing it with the status, the identity of a Canadian PhD, I was treated differently. I was treated by people I knew way before I started my program in Canada, in Russia and Kazakhstan differently. I was a Canadian scholar for them. Oh. <laughs> uh, and uh, this was new for me and this was funny for me uh, because people kept asking questions like how things are in your Canada and not my Canada. <laughs> I'm brand new there. And then coming to conferences and people see on the badge University of Alberta, Canada, and they assume that I'm from from Canada. And at the same time, on numerous occasions in Canada, I was seen as a Russian scholar. And I'm in Chinese studies. That's my big thing. And I don't do Russian history. I can't give you a lecture on Cold War. This is not, I don't have this expertise. And this is the question that comes up really often. People asking me to do a guest lecture on something Russian. And what makes me an expert on Russia? Um, I'm writing now about Russia more than I used to, and increasingly more. I still don't consider myself an expert on uh, anything Soviet, for example, because this is not where my research expertise sits. And people making comments about me and my research as I was a postdoc. So after finishing my PhD in Canada at the University of Alberta, I went back to Russia in 2019 to do my postdoc in National Research University Higher School of Economics in Moscow. Mm -hmm. So I got a new affiliation and it was affiliation with Russian institution. And, uh, I had comments on conferences with people saying, this paper is too good for Russian scholar. What? I'm like, are you complimenting or insulting? Yeah. So what's, what's the nature of this comment? And what exactly you're commenting on? Are you commenting on my use of language, for example? Yeah. Yes, I think that I might have a better comment of English uh, than uh, many other non-native speakers. So are we talking about language or are we talking about quality of my research? And what makes me a Russian scholar? And will you call someone with a different surname and different accent a Russian scholar if they will Mm. have their same affiliation as I would? Will you call John Smith a Russian scholar (laughs) if they work as a visiting prof for two years in a Russian school? And this is insane. And I hate reading papers where in literature reviews, people divide scholarship in, this is what Chinese scholars think. This is what Russian scholars think. Yeah. This doesn't make sense because what makes someone a Chinese scholar or Russian scholar? How do you guess by a surname where are they coming from? And are you referring to where they were born or where they do research? And one of my papers been recently cited, and the citation says Western scholars study this issue. And I'm not really a Western scholar. I'm not sure that I'm non-Western scholar in a conventional sense. 
but I'm definitely don't feel myself as a Western scholar. And being a somewhat, I call myself a somewhat critical constructivist because I'm not critical enough to claim critical scholarship, but I'm critical enough not to put myself into the box of Western scholarship. And I don't know how to respond to things like this because other papers that cite me call me a Russian scholar. Right. And I'm wondering, four months in the UK now, having this affiliation with a British school, am I British? Yeah. I know. I think all of this points to how people just seek to categorize and classify. And it's really fascinating to hear your experiences and how you're read, how your surname is read, how your quote-unquote mm-hmm. accent is read, even how your school is read. So in some settings, you're Canadian. In other settings, you're Russian. Mm. Never Chinese, though, which, as you said, is really interesting as well. And even in the literature, you're on one hand classified as a Western part of the Western group. And you're like, no, I'm not quite part Mm -hmm. of that. And then part of the Russian group. And it's also permeable and also fuzzy and inconsistent, right? Our affiliations come with privilege. It's a privilege to be a scholar in Canada, a huge one. It's a huge privilege to be a scholar in UK. And dealing with those privileges, it's also a challenge in terms of how you position yourself and what this affiliation gives to your authority. Why is it a privilege? Can you speak a little bit more about that? Access to resources, huge access to academic resources, starting with libraries, going all the way to being able to be mobile in academic environment, uh, getting access to funding opportunities, Mm. freedom of speech and (laughs) academic freedoms. That's a big thing. And It just gives way more opportunities than someone uh, working from the global south. And Mm -hmm. being myself a student in a Russian university and very well-established Russian university and being a student in a very well-established Chinese university, I can see the difference Mm. in terms of both freedom and access to resources and opportunities for collaborations. Mm. And I hate then there is this trend in academia and we need some Russian scholars on a Russian panel. So we will invite some people with Russian sounding names from Russian schools. Mm. Or we do the same for whatever panel we do on China. As much as representation matters, one has to be very careful about what this representation really stands mm-hmm. for. Being someone like myself, as a designated Russian scholar doesn't really work because with my Canadian PhD and with my experience in Western academia, I don't really represent local uh, academic communities. A hundred percent. I'm not that Russian anymore for to represent Russian scholars. I think that's what's really hard about categorizing people into being from certain regions, right? Or being from certain Mm -hmm. countries. And I think that speaks to how crude our understanding of representation can be as well. I suspect that I get invited to speak at events because they see me and they're like, okay, well, you're Filipino. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, but yes, but I think we should also nuance people who are Filipino in Canada and people who are Filipino living currently in the Philippines and who are aware and who are experiencing the current political regime, right? Like we have to kind Mm -hmm. of nuance these distinctions as well. And one thing I was curious about, Anya, as you were talking was you've been going to different countries and now you're based in the UK. And in many ways, we talked a little bit about this before we started taping, getting a job period in this 
awful job market. It's such a relief. But it feels as though with your situation, it's compounded by the geopolitical realities that you might be facing as well. Can you speak a little bit more about what it took for you to assume your job there in the UK? What are some of the constraints that you may have faced? What was the job market like? First of all, until February last year, I was very sure that I settled down in Moscow for good. Mm. And I was not planning to go on another international adventure. Once the war started, once Russia started the war and invaded Ukraine, it became increasingly clear that I have no opportunity to continue some of my research projects in Russia. And I can't do teaching the way I would like to do my teaching. Mm. And there are more and more political constraints on academia. So I started looking for jobs and um, I was afraid that my citizenship would be a barrier. It was not. And Mm. I'm very happy to say that no job interviews I did last year made me believe that I was discriminated in any way. or treated unfairly because of my citizenship. Uh, But once I got the job, this is where the real adventure started because (laughs) the university wanted me to start in September. And this Mm. was not possible because I need at least three or four months to obtain the visa. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. this is not because there are some special sanctions against Russian citizens on behalf of UK. This is more or less a standard situation. Mm. There are additional delays because a lot of international links are now interrupted. And many countries, including UK, are trying to motivate Russian citizens to stand against the war in many different ways, including restricting mobility. Whether it works or not, it's part of different conversation but applying for visa is quite a challenge yeah and it's very expensive as well overall costs of uh, my immigration are about seven thousand euros oh my god <laughs> yes and i'm very grateful for help that i got from many friends because i had to make a lot of upfront payments the biggest one is insurance for uk because okay. you have to pay upfront for five years of health insurance as a work permit holder also little expenses that are never included in any funding visa expensive and immigration expenses that are rarely fought about by the funding agencies and universities who provide compensations. I was talking about translations. That's a big part of those expenses. It takes time and it's expensive. What did you have to, to get translated? Oh, everything. Every single piece of paper. The only document that I haven't didn't have to translate was my Canadian PhD, but I had to request a verification from UK that my PhD is genuine and it allows me to take the position I'm applying for. This is an additional expense as well. And passports, bank statements, birth certificates, criminal record checks, everything has to be translated. And usually mm, uh, countries want official translation, certified translation, so you pay for this certification. And that's a lot. And I had to get a criminal record check from Canada. This was Mm -hmm. quite an adventure. Thank you again to everyone who participated (laughs) in this adventure. I owe a lot figuratively and literally to my friends because I couldn't pay for 
any of those expensive myself due to sanctions. But uh, sanctions or no sanctions, it's still very expensive. Those and visas are expensive. And as an international scholar with my Russian passport, I have to take into account visas all the time. Mm. It's not only about expenses, it's also about timing and scheduling mm. and planning. Mm -hmm. And on many occasions, conference organizers just don't take this into account, that mm -hmm. it might take you two or three months to get a visa, and you don't get verifications and acceptance letters in advance to apply for those things. And your one of your previous guests, Marta Balaguerra, yeah, she yeah, spoke yeah. about navigating international academia with Colombian passport. And I kind of relate so well with what <laughs> she was saying. She mentioned getting a visa to the European Union and Mexico just for 10 days. I've been once for a conference in Belgium and I got my visa for three days. So they Three literally days. gave me a visa for exactly for the conference. So That's I had ridiculous. to come. Yeah, I had to come a day before my presentation and have to leave the next day after my presentation because it was only three days. And many countries they give what is called humanitarian visas. Yeah. So if I'm coming to European Union to do a conference and for academic purposes, I won't pay for my visa, but then this would be a very short visa. Yeah. <laughs> it just gives additional stress. Of I've course. never been to ISA, International Studies Association, and I think that the name is ridiculous because how international is it if it's always in North America? Um, 100%. I've been to ISA in Toronto because I was in Canada, but I never went to US because I have to apply for American visa and it's a headache in itself. And for me living in Edmonton, for example, I would have to go all the way to Calgary to apply in person <laughs> and no one will ever compensate me for sure. the costs of going to Calgary. So just to backtrack a little bit, just so our listeners are clear, none of the costs that you accrued, with the exception of perhaps your plane ticket, they compensated you for pl for your plane ticket, right? Like your school, but none of the costs other than your plane fare, none of the criminal record checks, none of the visa no. applications, the school, schools generally don't pay for these. You have to assume these costs, yeah. right? And oh when you're God. applying for travel funding uh, for conferences, it's almost never there is what's it called budget category. Almost never you can claim visa expenses. And even if you can claim visa expenses, you can claim the costs of actual visa, but not all the supporting documents and not traveling to apply for visa. There are countries that do applications now online. And mm. I love those. I loved Australian visa because I could apply online for it and it didn't cost me anything. For US visa, I would need to go in person to one of American consulates. And this means time too. As a PhD student or as a um, lecturer, working academic, you sometimes don't have those three or four days to no. travel. And money, traveling costs money. And it's insane. And... It's even difficult to track those expenses because it's just a bunch of small things that you need. And to my knowledge, uh, universities don't include immigration expenses on reimbursement and relocation packages. 
It's something some that- schools do actually. Some schools, if you negotiate, do. But what's really awful, and this is what I'm hearing constantly, is this is something that you as an individual have to fight for. It's not something schools give, right? Think about kind of the structural impediments to that. If, for example, even in terms of bargaining power, right? Knowing how bad the mm-hmm. job market is, and maybe you're yeah. also facing geopolitical constraints and you're like, any job really that takes me out of, you know, where I am, mm-hmm. you would accept it. But that reduces your bargaining power, right? So a lot mm-hmm. of these issues are systemic and it's awful. And we, as, yeah, I'm a big fan of your podcast. So I remember <laughs> one where you were talking about money and how academia is not the place where you discuss money. And then you're finally getting to the point when you get your offer from the university. You don't want to be a problem for them. And I did hear from some of university representatives in their in the span of my academic career that hiring me or getting me was a headache and a nightmare. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, truly, I felt through went through this nightmare in hell with you. But there is little I can do. Interesting. So hearing that, how does that make you feel? Because I would imagine that if you already know that some people think that you're a headache, that it's been such a nuisance getting you. Does that make you feel it's always <laughs> about It's mixed feelings because I believe that I'm a good scholar. <laughs> I believe are, that yeah. I'm bringing something uh, to the school. I'm a good teacher. My research is important. So I'm bringing this research to the school and I want the school to be as interested in me as I'm interested in the school. I find it really frustrating that this is a sentiment that's so freely shared, right? Like a part of me like is thinking that there are competing imperatives here, right? On the one hand, a lot of universities are boasting about how they're internationalizing, how going Mm -hmm. to a specific university exposes you to a range of experts from around the world that are experts in their chosen areas, right? And that's one of the ways they lure not just domestic students, also international students, right? That these university rankings depends on the number of international students and international faculty. A hundred percent. And so that's one imperative. But on the other hand, there's like bureaucratic pushback to that. So it's like, Mm -hmm. well, what is it? Either you want us to internationalize or you don't. So make it easier and make it more accessible for international scholars to come here. If you really want to make your university like a global university that attracts all of these tuition dollars and that attracts all of this funding and that gives you higher rankings, right? Ridiculous. Yeah, and it's also about immigration system and immigration politics and policymaking. Yeah. Because immigration is never about letting people in. It's about not letting people in. Yes. And I hate applying for visas because all you do with those applications, you prove that you're not a criminal. Yes. You prove that you're worth <laughs> it. And you don't have this presumption of being not guilty. Mm. You have to prove that you're safe, essentially. Mm. Mm -hmm. And you're coming with a huge fear of bureaucracy because we all fear bureaucracies. Of course. What if you make a mistake? What if you submit a wrong document? What if you make a mistake on form? What if you don't put a tick in their right box and so on? You're already nervous and stressful and you're already in this... um, somewhat marginalized position because you're asking this country, you can't demand it. Mm. You ask this country for a permission to enter and the country Mm -hmm. has all the rights to refuse you because I'm not a refugee. I'm not a vulnerable person who needs protection. I'm Mm -hmm. coming for work and I asking 
for and at a certain point it feels like begging for permission to enter and you want to do it right and you are really afraid of making mistake and jeopardizing your status in the country you don't have the right for mistake as you can't have a criminal record you can't do something wrong you can't break laws you have to pay your taxes you have to provide as much information as possible about yourself you have to answer all ridiculous questions even if they are racist uh, sexist or prejudiced you have to fit into those categories because you really want to be in this country uh, when you're applying for grad school, you're, you want to do your PhD in the best university possible, and it's your dream. You want to be the part of the school. You got your scholarship, and now you need to do HIV test and pee in a glass. <laughs> a cup, yeah. yeah, a cup. And okay, if this cup stands between me and PhD, okay, I'm going for that. Absolutely. Uh, the same about job market, yes. because it's difficult enough to find a good job in academia, a stable job in academia. And then you need to apply for this visa and you have to jump through those hoops and you have to do whatever you're asked to do. Yeah. It's a very, at the same time, it's very interesting because and very sobering experience because I think in academia, we used to being treated with a privilege. I'm used to being a scholar. I'm yep. used to being accepted as a member of our society, let's say, and suddenly I need a criminal record check and suddenly someone questions my intentions of coming to a specific country. And this is sobering in terms of, yes, we are part of this world, even if we manage to hide for substantial number of substantial time in our lives, in our ivory tower. Once we are out of there, it's a little world. Yeah, no, I think everything that you're saying. So I'm a scholar of immigration, right? And I'm a scholar looking at kind of immigration policymaking and histories of immigration and histories of border control. And I think everything that you're saying is making me reflect on my research too, like my own actual academic research. Because I think, first of all, there are hierarchies when it comes to passports, right? And a lot of the kind of nitty gritty requirements that you are facing is not something that, for example, a U.S. passport holder faces, right? Absolutely. Because, for example, in Canada, there's exchange agreements where you don't have to prove that you're not like a criminal, right? I mean, there's still some documents required, but it's not to the same extent. So these bilateral exchange agreements help facilitate entry. So of course, the passport and what kind of passport you have, that does affect the type of checks that you're required to, to provide, right? But on the other hand, as you say, yes, as scholars, we are still super privileged, right? So it makes me think that, of course, these requirements are completely taxing or completely stressful. But then I think about like, you know, temporary foreign workers who are deemed low skilled, who because of the profession that they're entering into have to even have to supply even more kind of requirements and have to also get visas that are tied to their employers. Right. So mm -hmm. it's, it's my visas are also tied to my employers. Okay, because so if, um, if I'm not working or if I don't have a certain number of hours, I'm out. I will be deported. Oh. And this would happen pretty fast. How are they tracking your hours? If the university, if my employer says that I'm not doing enough hours, this would be the reason. And it's the same for students, in fact, because you have to be in school to be in country. And never been in this situation, but know that it's sometimes tricky. Then for whatever reason, you have to have a break from your studies. 
So what if you get sick? What if you get mm. sick not for a week, but for two or three months? You need to take a break from your PhD. How does this affect your visa? Can you afford having a break? Because what if you do so and you lose your study permit? That's a lot of pressure in terms of how independent you fell from your institution and how much power does the institution have over you, has over you. So I didn't even think about how so I know about students, right? But I didn't think about how international visa holders who are employees of the university, how your hours are also tracked. That's mind boggling to me. So if, for example, your employers are like, she's not actually working these amounts of hours, you might be reported to the UK Home Office, right? Yep. Yep. And if uh, university decides that they don't need me anymore, they just give me four weeks note. And effectively, I pack my stuff and go four weeks nailed because I'm currently on probation for 12 months. Then I think it would be eight weeks note if there will be budget cuts or whatever else. And you have two months to move where because sometimes going back home is not really an option. Uh, this is how I currently feel myself. Then I don't have a home anymore, so there is no place where I could go back. And as scholars and as students, we're dealing with topics that are politically charged. And it could become because you're coming to Canada, to US, to UK, because you want to study politics that you can't study in your own country. You're coming with this promise of academic freedom. And what do you do if you have to go back? What if you would be punished for things you did with this academic freedom uh, as a scholar elsewhere? And I think it does. many universities don't take it into consideration enough. The consequences and vulnerabilities that come with hiring international faculty members and bringing international students in. Because Canada encourages you to be critical UK encourages you to be critical, but once you're done, what do you do? What do you do next if you have to leave? And sure. this becomes borderline de de dangerous for many scholars. And yeah, and I don't want to complain on my Russian passport too much because Russia is an international bully. It's an increasingly authoritarian state, increasingly totalitarian state. But I still have huge privilege of being born and raised in Moscow, for example. This comes with a huge privilege within Russian social and political and economic hierarchies. And um, I know that... Russian passport is not the worst one. It mm. could get worse and significantly worse. And again, because I have many other identities as like scholarly identity and being affiliated with universities, this helps because I'm not treated as someone without academic affiliation. And within academia, you tend to feel like you will be protected by academia somehow. Mm. That you, I'm trying to avoid saying things like you become more legitimate as a person with academic affiliation, but I think this is what I want to say. No, and I think that's uh, true, right? Because being inhabiting the identity of academia or being academics, 
that at least gives us the cultural capital, the social capital Mm -hmm. to be protected, right? Because it is seen as a profession that is more kind of high status, right? And Mm -hmm. so taking this into account and taking kind of the constraints others also face, I do think having the scholarly identity, having access to, for example, you know, international academic exchanges, right? That would allow you to leave a country that's facing turbulence, that's facing turmoil. Mm -hmm. There are exchanges in a lot of universities that allow you to do that, which in other professions and not even professions for other people who don't have access to a profession who are probably, you know, not part of the same kind of class hierarchy, right? Then it's a little bit harder. Absolutely. And it still doesn't protect you enough. And the reality check happens uh, because I'm Russian and stereotypes. I've been asked several times in different countries, what do I think about sex work and what? whether I'm looking for a boyfriend? <laughs> and I'm usually asked about my marital <laughs> status because coming from what? Eastern Europe, Russia, <laughs> you have this, to a certain extent, sexualized and gendered uh, national identity where women are expected to be more interested in marriage, I guess, and uh, <laughs> that you're more likely to try to uh, monetize your femininity and your womanhood. And uh, it's again comes with rage first me saying that I'm coming for a conference that I'm coming for studies they ask you that in conferences or in the context not in conferences okay once you (laughs) cross borders okay so you're coming to this booth at the airport and you're giving your password yep Uh yeah and they ask you all those nasty questions and you can't (laughs) allow yourself to be funny you can't allow yourself to be to express any sort of irony it has to be very straightforward I think that sex work is bad. I'm not going to do sex work while I'm doing this conference in this country. I'm coming here for studies. I'm not going to get married soon, I think. And All yeah. of these stereotypes are ghastly. I feel like when I cross borders, you know what? When I had the Philippine passport, because we didn't actually naturalize until 2003, right? That's when I got my Canadian passport. The way I was treated was worlds apart. First of all, it was easier to access countries because Canada doesn't, most countries allow Canadians to enter without visas, right? But under the Philippine passport, a lot of the stereotypes bled into the way immigration officials treated me. So I 100% relate. That's why. And what's the typical Filipino question? Some of them, okay, so usually, not usually, but I've had I've had moments where immigration officers with a Filipino passport will just say like random shit like, oh my gosh, you know, my girlfriend's Filipina, right? Like she, (sighs) (laughs) she like cooks really, you know, basically like you're such good people. She cooks really well. She like is very affectionate and you're just like, I don't, I don't really know what to say to that, but you can't question them because what if they reject you, right? So you just kind of nod and you have to assume this docile facade, even though inwardly you're like, what the heck is happening? So I relate. I've been asked how many bottles of vodka I'm bringing. (laughs) Not whether I'm bringing bottles of vodka, but how many bottles of vodka I'm bringing. (laughs) Okay. What if I'm more into wine? That's hilarious. Final question. What advice will you give other international visa holders when it comes to kind of navigating graduate school and the academic job market and also dealing with the realities of academic citizenship and the way passports are seen differently? The same advice as I would like to give to myself, being more assertive in self-advocacy. 
I wish I was more strategic about bargaining with all the universities I went to. And I wish I was less scared about not getting this visa. But it's also a bad advice to give because everyone still will feel scared. It's not possible to forget about this fear. What happens if I don't get this visa? What happens if they will reject me? What happens if my passport will be lost? Which, by the way, happened too. And I, was, I had the visa, but my the only ID I had in the country been lost in the post, so this happens oh. too. But it's uh, even cruel to say don't be stressed about it, don't be nervous about it. It's impossible. So to be as much confident in yourself as it is possible mm. and to be open about your concerns uh, to uh, let people know. Because I think... It's not always that universities are bad places who don't care about people. It's sometimes they don't know that there are people with different concerns. Mm. And until you voice those concerns, they won't know. Being upfront about what difficulties you experience uh, and talk with university administrators, talk to supervisors and explain things to them, this would be very helpful and for next generations as well, because someone coming after you with similar problems and no one in the HR department or grad student office would be surprised that they don't have, uh, like, surprise, surprise, foreigners have foreign documents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this should not be a surprise. Uh, and talking about it and talking about how long does it take and how expensive it is to navigate this academic citizenship and change your academic citizenship, I think it's an important part. And I think we can learn from it in terms of what we do in academia. Then we talk about international relations or immigration policies. It's a big part of the world that we live in. And advice is all about being conscious and not trying to silence your concerns. And for me, it's always very helpful to know that I'm not alone. Mm. Again, listening to Marta Balaguerra in your previous episode, I felt really validated because I'm not the only one. Yeah. And reminding yourself that you're not the only one facing this kind of trouble is very important. That's awesome. Yeah. I think everything you say is going to resonate with our listeners who are experiencing the same situation. Thank you so much, Anya. Thank you too. Before talking to Anya, I was aware of the challenges that international scholars face at a high level. But I don't think I fully appreciated all the little ways that academia forces international scholars to constantly have to prove that they belong in their institutions. If academic institutions don't acknowledge and create support for those with a quote-unquote wrong passport, we will continue to perpetuate this really problematic hierarchy. If colleges and universities keep seeking to enhance their status as world-class institutions by recruiting international scholars, then isn't it only fair that more resources be directed towards such scholars? And that's Academic Aunties. We'd love to hear from you. Get in touch with us on Twitter at, at @academicauntie. On Macedon, you can find us at academicanties at mass.to. And send us an email anytime at podcast at academicantes.com. I also want to take a moment to ask for your support. 
as an independent podcast and one that doesn't use any academic funds to maintain our independence, we rely on the support of listeners to continue to produce quality content. And if you're so inclined, you can contribute to our production costs by becoming a Patreon supporter. We also have amazing Academic Anti swag, including a mug, hoodies, and stickers. Visit academicantis.com slash support to learn more. That's academicantis.com slash support. Today's episode of Academic Antis was hosted by me, Dr. Ethel Tunkohan, and produced by Dr. Nisha Nath and Wayne Chu. Tune in next time when we talk to more Academic Antis. Until then, take care, be kind to yourself, and don't be an asshole.